Hello and welcome to the Day's Talk podcast. My name is Lewis Mitchell, an economic student at the University of Essex. I'm here with my co-host, Stephanie Ectopoulos. Hello, I am also a student studying economics and politics. And today we've got a special guest, David Axelson. Hello, I'm David. I'm a senior lecturer in the Department of Government. So we'd like to start off with a icebreaker topic, which will be a would you rather question. So right. would you rather be in a zombie apocalypse or a robot apocalypse? Or what was the other one? A robot apocalypse. I think I've been very good in the zombie apocalypse. I've been thinking about it quite a lot lately with watching The Last of Us. And I, I'm thinking, this is my kind of world. Oh, I really? I thrive here. Yeah, I think I'd be what really would be good your main it. tactic then? What's your main tactic to survive? I think I'd just like, I'd know a lot about how to get stuff done. I always try to look into like, what do you need to to do different things in different circumstances. So I think uh, I'd be pretty well suited for that. Yeah, I, I think I definitely have to go over a robot apocalypse. So I feel like zombies, like, think about it. If it was a robot, worst case scenario, you just get shot or something like that. But if it's a zombie, like, I would getting attacked by a horde of zombies would be a lot more scary than like than a horde of robots. Getting eaten is way worse. I have to say. <laughs> no, but I feel like with with a robot apocalypse, you have a next to like no chance of survival. They're all going to come with like those big weapons of mass destruction coming straight at you. With zombies, they're going to be a lot slower. You're going to have much more time, you know, to survive and maybe get away or defend yourself. But with a robot apocalypse, now I would um, I would no, I'd die straight away. They're yeah. always going to know more than you. I thought be smarter. one little like EMP or a bit of water and they're done. Oh, yeah. Didn't think of that. Yeah. Didn't think of that. Water, that's a good point. Just going to have a bottle of water with you. <laughs> yeah. Safe. All right. The next one is, would you rather be able to tell every lie or get away with every lie? So you can detect anyone who's lying to you oh, or right. get away with every lie. I'd rather be able to detect lies. <laughs> What's your reasoning behind that? Hmm... <laughs> I guess I like understanding people around me, and that would be an excellent way of being able to do so. Yeah, I think I'd have to definitely agree, because although being able to like get away with anything, I feel you definitely like it would become a habit, and you end up relying on that. One hundred percent. Also, like ruin it. You wouldn't have the fun of getting away with a lie <laughs> yeah. if, it was, if it was that easy. You see, I'd say the main issue is because then there's the potential for you to become a compulsive liar, almost, where you don't know, are you really lying, are you are you not lying, you've told this lie potentially so many times that mm. it could be generally part of your reality, you may think that this is the truth. And then also, whilst you can get away with any lie, there's nothing to say that what you're going to say is actually going to happen, So, or what you have said did happen. So you can't actually change reality, you can just get away with like lying, do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, 100%. Okay, and then the, the final question, a bit more close to our topic. Would you rather solve world hunger or global warming? Ooh, that's a tough one. I would most like to do both. Yeah, of course. But uh, I guess I'd rather solve global warming since I think that's likely to cause a lot of hunger in the future. Yeah. So I think... Solving world, solving world hunger right now would be a great thing to do. It would s- uh, spare a lot of lives, mm. but they might people might well become hungry again, right? Yeah. Whereas if we stopped global warming, that would be more of a long-term solution. Yeah, I agree. Ultimately, as well, if we were to leave global warming to keep going, it would cause more problems just than just world hunger, mm. as well. 
Stefan, what do you think? You see, I would say world hunger solely because I feel like the world already kind of understands the severity of, of global warming. Um, as you can see, they've made real um, strides to progress with the Paris Agreement. The, the ozone layer is already closing. And so whilst obviously I agree global warming is far more serious, I'd say nowadays world hunger is um, a lot more topical, it's a lot more relevant, um, as we see, especially with like, uh, what's going on nowadays with um, cost of living crisis and stuff. More and more people are dr driven into free school meals. Um, from According to Office of National Statistics, in the last year it's gone up um, 2% from 20.8% to 22.5%. And then a lot more people, and this one shocked me just to read, in the last 10 years, we've gone from 128,000 people depending on food banks in the UK alone to 2.2 million people. And this is for the year um, after COVID. So we've not got 2020, this is 2021. And we've not got the latest data on 2022 where a lot more people have got the cost of living crisis. And so this is what is really, I think, making people struggle. And it's because they just can't afford to feed themselves realistically. And so I guess my question is, what is your view on the current systems in place in the UK to try and support those who are the most vulnerable? And if, if you don't think they're good enough, what would you change? Right. So I think in the UK, compared to many places, it's a f we do have a welfare state here. It's not as generous as, in it, as it is in many countries in the, in the rest of Europe, but it's certainly more generous than in the US and in many other countries. But I guess if we're looking at like the basics, unemployment benefits, helping retired people, disability benefits, uh, supporting people with low earnings, the first thing I would do was be to would be to increase them, mm. make them more fair. Yeah, because basically I think the main reason for why people have the income and wealth that they do is due to luck. Yeah, they've been lucky in the natural and social lotteries. So if people are poor, not earning very much, it's not something that they deserve. Yeah. Right? And so I think it would basically just to make the world more fair, make the country more fair if you redistribute it from the poor, from mm -hmm. the rich to the poor. But another thing is one thing that we're seeing increasingly in the UK is that you make benefits conditional. So you have to prove that you deserve the benefits to an increasing extent. Mm. So very much the government will try to make you uh, undergo quite a lot of tests and bring a lot of proof and evidence that you're actually disabled, that you're actually uh, have tried to get a job and failed mm. to do so. And I basically think the government is employed by the people. And in this case, there's something problematic about the government uh, who's the employee mm. of the employers, that is the people, showing this kind of distrust towards them. like not believing the yeah. claims that they yeah. bring to them. It's also a, quite a wasteful practice. You spend a lot of money chasing people up with evidence. And um, there's a philosopher from, a political philosopher from uh, Oxford, Jonathan Wolfe, who has this other excellent point, I think, which is sometimes people will be put in a situation here where you keep asking them, well, did you apply for these jobs? Did you apply for these jobs? So on the one hand, 
you're showing a lack of trust in them. On the other hand, maybe they did apply for all these jobs and they just couldn't get them. Mm. Yeah. So they have to go to the state and say, I'm just so stupid. I'm just uh. so unwanted mm. that you have to help me, right? They have to reveal these shameful things mm. about themselves. He calls it shameful revelations. Mm. And so I think that's another problem that comes with this conditionality, like s setting clear conditions on benefits. So I'm a strong proponent of unconditional benefits as proposed with, for example, a universal basic income, which I think is a better system. I would, uh, from what I know from the welfare payment system, it is notoriously hard to prove that you are actively seeking employment. You have to mm -hmm. almost, I don't know how true this one statement is, but I know it's almost as if you have to show them videos or photos of you handing in your CV, of you applying to things, just so they can actively see, well, I guess almost what you said, you getting rejected for because you just don't have the skills, you don't know what people are looking for, you don't have the experience. Mm -hmm. And... If you're unemployed from a young age, it's very, very hard to get a job, I guess, when you're older because you've been out of job for so someone's been out of employment for so long, you have no work experience, you haven't got money to pay to get new skills. And so you're just in a constant cycle, I guess, of unemployment and needing these these this help and this benefit. And yeah, it's just quite a almost a cruel process. I've never thought of it like that, but yeah, it is definitely quite but cruel. But also, think about if you're in this situation. You really need experience. You need to learn new skills. What's the worst thing you could spend your time doing? Chasing around the place um, for evidence true. and writing CVs true. and job applications for jobs that you know you're never going to get mm. just to please uh, the unemployment office. Like, yeah, that's not a that's not a that's a wasteful way of using our time effectively all these people are becoming structurally unemployed and they're stuck in this cycle yeah. and the resources we much better spent on retraining them and re-educating them so they can actually fit today's job market yeah and i think there's something about that you're trying very hard because you have this mistrust you're trying very hard to like hold them responsible for their choices mm. but actually what we really want is for their sake we want them to have a job because it would be better for them if they spent their time on something productive. Yeah. So that's what we should focus on. We should remember we're doing it for your sake. We should try to help you, not try to punish you, right? All right. This sort of links, I guess, to something you said earlier about almost the luck of the draw of being the family you're being born into. What is their access to resources? Um, we did a little bit of research beforehand and found out that 80% of intelligence is derived from environmental factors, such as where you're going to school, such as maybe even down to what you're eating and how, how that helps your mind develop. Mm. And so because of this, do you think that everyone should be offered the same quality of schooling therefore eradicating private schools, as private schools obviously getting paid a lot more, not just from the state, but from the public, can, af can attract better teachers by paying them more, but also invest far more into facilities, therefore giving their students a much, much like, better opportunity in life, better education. Mm. Right. Um, I think this is a big and complex question, and there are mm. some excellent uh, people in... Warwick and UCL, who's done some very good work on this, Adam Swift and um, uh, Matthew Clayton. That's the one I was looking for. Um, basically, I think private schools can serve an important purpose, but I think it should be much more constrained than it currently is. 
like you said, I don't think private schools should be allowed to sort of uh, be a gatekeeper into the mm. upper echelons of society. Um, but maybe if you have very specific needs, say you just want your child to learn how to play a violin and you want them to be trained by the best violinist in the world, mm -hmm. right? Or the, in the UK. It's fair enough that you yeah. pay more to get your uh, to get your child into a school that uh, has this uh, feature, and it's also fair enough that the government doesn't think that every single school should have a violin, a world class violinist uh, employed, right? Mm -hmm. But I also looked a little bit at the numbers, and I saw that it's six percent of the population in the UK that go to private schools, and out of the people who earn more than three hundred thousand pounds a year, sixty percent go to private schools. Right? Wow, that's so, a crazy statistic. So yeah. already we can see that it's uh, it's it's a lot more of certain uh, parts of society that go there, and then forty percent of those that get into Oxford and Cambridge come from private schools. Mm -hmm. So mm. again, we can see. Um, that it's people from much wealthier backgrounds. 76% of judges and 32% of MPs come from private mm. school backgrounds, right? So private schools in themselves might not be a problem. They can serve some sort of important roles sometimes, like in the violinist example, right? Um, but as long as they are kind of this gatekeeper into powerful positions in society, then it's problematic that it's the very wealthy people and their children that go there, right? So, so what do you think could be done to then sort of get rid of that gatekeeping problem, the issue that you just mentioned? Well, um, I think we should put very strict rules in place about who that private schools basically should take in a lot of people, a, a lot of children from other backgrounds and should not be allowed to take tuition from them, for example, right? So um, to ensure that a much, much more of the uh, of people of, of children of different backgrounds came into private schools. So, so that would one, be one way of doing it. Another way would just be to abolish private schools. Yeah. And I wouldn't be completely opposed to that mm. either. Either. Yeah, I see, I see the point you're making. 100% I agree with you. But I feel the level of teaching, if, if you was to abolish the schools, I think it would decentivize all the great teachers because the people who are teaching those kids hmm. to, to obviously get the results they do, they have to be very dedicated teachers who are good at their job and they're being paid a certain amount. And I'm assuming it has to be fairly higher than the people at public schools. So if you was then to decentivize them with the lower wages, then I'm pretty sure it would end up resulting in and that loss because then you're not having as good teachers and although it is the elites who are doing it you still do need the smart people at the top to be able to be politicians and do all these important jobs like bankers and doctors so i still feel that i think private schools should exist but maybe subsidized by the government or if the government were to give grants to lower income families it could be a better way to, for them to be yeah. a gateway in yeah so I, I think you make some very good points, but, but I guess most of the points are about that basically teacher in general is a job that's paid way too little mm. yeah, and has far too little. partly therefore a way too low social status. It's one of the most, maybe the most important job in the whole society 
it's crazy that we pay mm. them so little. Like, how many of the people who send their uh, kids to private schools where they earn, like the people who earn over 300,000 pounds a year, how many of them are teachers? Probably none of them. Like, if you earn 300,000 pounds a year, you're not a teacher, yeah, yeah. right? No chance. Even head teachers, like, at private schools, not even close. It's like 100,000 at best, probably. Probably at best, yeah. yeah. 100,000, maybe 120. This is all very topical, because obviously with all the strikes going on, literally as we speak, um, a lot of it is more... I don't know necessarily if, necessarily if the teachers are striking over just normal pay. I know it's about pay rises and about the fact that a lot of their income from pensions is being reduced. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost a travesty to think that teachers... It's, it's, it's the one thing that if you look at everyone in society, that we've all had a teacher, haven't we? We've all had a yeah. teacher from such a young age. Even you can consider your parents a teacher when they teach you the English language. It's crazy just to me to almost think about how underpaid they are compared to other um, occupations in society, obviously, especially in the public sector. And so with this, just saying with the whole strikes, it is just obviously very, very, very topical, isn't it? Mm. So I've yeah. just looked it up here, and the median wage for a head teacher in the UK is fifty-six thousand pounds a year. That's a head teacher. Yeah, as head well, teacher. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's one teacher in the that school. That is ridiculous. Yeah. No, but I think actually one of the problems is what you point to. I think it's because parents also teach their children, and we all teach at different points in our lives, right? We all experience moments where we teach other people something, mm. and that means that we naturally think teachers are replaceable, substitutable, because everyone can teach, right? Mm. But of course, good teachers are not at all substitutable, Mm. and they're essential for a good society. Even an average teacher, I'd say, let's say when you think of primary school, um, even just looking at basic maths or arithmetic, potentially a parent, yes, they can teach that. But to suggest that every single parent in society at secondary school can teach secondary school maths or Jesus seeds, especially when you get past a seven and a level, they, they will they they can't objectively they can't and and so people I guess would have to change this mentality of yes the teachers are replaceable they're just they're, they're easy to replace just look at them oh you take you have six weeks off in summer I get a month off in summer you should feel happy with your wage that sort of mentality you know what I mean. I think I think a good teacher also can like really motivate and inspire someone to take a career. Mm-hmm. For example, I don't think I would be here right now studying the subject I'm studying if it weren't for my A level teachers. Because mm. I wouldn't, I don't think I would have enjoyed the subject as much as I did. They were so mm. good. They were clearly dedicated to the job, and they I got along with them. And you could tell that they were really wanting to teach. And that I think is what helped me to really get into economics. And of mm-hmm. course, I love the subject, but as an extra thing, if there were awful teachers who didn't care, yeah. who went for board, I don't think I would have connected with the subject as much as I did. Yeah, yeah. I think teachers, as some of the, are in a situation where they can change people's lives every year, right? Mm. Many people's lives and change the course of their lives. And just not many people have that much influence on society and mm. that, that direct of an influence. And therefore, it's madness that we don't pay them more. Yeah. A lot of us, just to end of this one bit, a lot of us, I'm, I'm not, at least I have, I still remember that one point throughout my GCSEs, not, not, it was not even around exams, it was the year before the GCSEs, um, that I remember I had one teacher, his name was Mr. Edo. He was an amazing teacher and really, really inspired me to, to, to really try hard in maths. And I just think that uh, with all this going on right now, 
that I'm sure all of us would almost have that one moment where we're looking at a teacher and either we're thinking they really know what they know or that they just really get it, they're really helpful to us and they've really inspired us in some way, shape or form. And you can tell the difference between such a, like a really good teacher and a not so good teacher. But but anyway, um, talking about earlier when we were talking about what restrictions could you put on a private school, this sort of links to limitarianism, something you talk about in your recent I don't know, article, don't you? Um, so very, very briefly, we asked, would you like to explain the three main objections? So envy, levelling down and um, the fact that society will be handicapped. Would you like to take the floor for that? Right. So, um, yeah, so this connects to we've been talking about um, the distribution of society's resources, of course, quite a lot. And this connects to this theory that's come out recently proposed by a Dutch, well, Belgian, actually, but who works in the Netherlands, a philosopher whose name is Ingrid Robains, and she's proposed this theory that's called limitarianism. And the idea is that there's a limit to how rich you're allowed to be in society. So she suggests that it's impermissible to have more s resources than uh, a certain limit, than what you need to fully flourish, she calls it. And um, this basically, the, the idea sort of feeds into a general discussion that's up, that's come up very much both in the UK and the US in political debates about um, institutionalizing wealth tax or caps on wealth, um, where it's been suggested, or a millionaire tax, it's also sometimes called, where you not only have the kind of progressive taxation that we have in most societies, but where you'd have an additional one that targets the very rich specifically. So that's sort of the policy um, upshot of limitarianism. Now, in our paper, we talk about three different objections to this proposal. So one of the objections says, uh, when people propose a wealth tax or a millionaire tax, they're usually motivated by envy. It's because they're just jealous of millionaires. And Envy is the kind of feeling or the kind of uh, interpersonal relation we shouldn't seek to uh, get more of. So we shouldn't humor them when they say, when they come, with, come up with this envy-driven proposal. Now we say in response, using data from um, economics over the last, from the rise in inequality and the rise in extreme wealth over the last 20, 40 years, that actually it turns out that what actually happens in society with ex societies with extreme wealth is that the more people with extreme wealth there are in society, the more they spend money on luxuries. And this idea trickles down throughout society. So all income groups start spending a bigger share of their income on luxuries. And this, of course, this has been covered widely in many uh, social science books and in, in health economics as well. 
where uh, they show that people get so concerned with their social status in these kind of societies. Because, of course, when there are great inequalities, there's more room to rise and fall. So it becomes more important what your status looks like. Mm. And in, in essence, of course, that means that it's a society with more envy. Yeah. So actually, if we want to avoid envy, if we care about that, we should really avoid these societies with great inequalities and mm. high levels of extreme wealth, mm. right? So that's the first point. Second one is about um, leveling down. So there's a classic argument against uh, wealth taxation. It basically says the reason that these people became wealthy is because they are particularly good at generating wealth in society. They're very good at doing things in the market that other people want to invest in, right? They're the Elon Musks and the Jeff Bezos of society. And if we say, no, we should tax away this money, this would remove the incentives to try to create more wealth. And that would make everyone, everyone worse off, right? Mm -hmm. It would level down society. But our point is that, our point, our counter-argument here is that actually inequalities are often worse than we think. And that's because um, many of the things you can use wealth for um, is connected to what we, well, what is called in e the economic literature, what's called positional goods. So some goods, for example, food, if I have some good food, my food is not made worse by the fact that you, Lewis, has even better food. Mm. That doesn't mm. change the quality of my food. But other goods, for example, a vote in politics, if we originally had one vote each, yeah. if you suddenly have three votes, mm -hmm. that I have the same number of votes, right? But the quality, the value yeah. of my yeah. vote is changed by the fact that you have more. Mm -hmm. In fact, my, the value is entirely dependent on how much other people have. So you're saying that's like directly like as a parallel to money. So if I have 10,000, him having a million makes my 10,000 a lot worse. So my point is exactly that money can be used. The reason money are, is so great mm. is that you can use it for so many different things. Mm. And many mm. of the things you can use it for have these positional aspects. You can use it to gain political influence. Right? Yes. And then... Of course, it's positional. You can use it to influence society's norms. You can use it more in your direction. You can buy Twitter or buy, <laughs> buy up newspapers like Rupert Murdoch. Questionable, in that way, questionable use of money there. Yeah, no, but that also, of course, then you influence society's agenda. Yes. Right? And that's to my detriment. So <clears throat> uh, there are just many ways in which inequalities are not as innocuous as they seem. Um, and then finally, the, the final argument is called, uh, this is, we refer to this as the Harrison Bergeron objection. Mm. And this comes from a short story by the American author Kurt Vonnegut, where he says, he imagines this society where equality, it's equal all the way down. So the very beautiful people have to wear masks so mm. that you can't see how ugly masks, so they, you can't see how beautiful they are. And the very strong people have to have like chains around their arms. And the very smart people get like 
an electric shock into their brain so they lose concentration once in a while, right? In that way, it makes everyone equal. And some people say something similar about a wealth tax. People who become extremely wealthy are excellent. They're excellent at doing certain things. And if we stop that, we'll minimize human excellence. And that would be bad in itself. Yeah. It, w it would be like putting masks on the beautiful or putting electric shock into the brains of the very smart people. But I think there's something about these kind of arguments and this glorification of billionaires that I think where I think you equate the ability to sell things with excellence to too great an extent. Let me give you, so as an example, the best-selling album in 2017 was Ed Sheeran's Divide. Mm -hmm. That was not the best album yeah. in 2017. <laughs> the best album of two se 2017 was, of course, Kendrick Lamar's Damn. Yeah. Oi. <laughs> At least you're going to say that if you didn't say it. <laughs> so I'm just saying the ability to sell things, how much you can, what you can do in a market doesn't necessarily mean that you isn't the same as excellence, right? Black Eyed Peas <laughs> sold a lot of records. Definitely not excellent. Boom, boom, pow. <laughs> they had to be bangers. Will I am was, was, was in his oh, prime. Man. He was something. Meet you halfway, Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> um, something I'd like to touch upon, yeah. and it, I think it relates as well to something you mentioned whilst you're talking about envy, and it was the fact that the super rich almost then try battle other super rich for positional sort of social yeah. elitism power. Something that I think comes along with this is um, something I really wanted to mention was the harm that this does almost just to the environment as well. Mm -hmm. Because they're not only just purchasing illustrious goods like houses, they're purchasing many, many cars, they're purchasing many, many private jets, they're purchasing many, many yachts. And this all collectively together would consume a lot of fossil fuels because they're not always going to be completely green energy are they they're going to look for the most mm -hmm. illustrious expensive goods which will allow them to get like to the highest point just show off in society and that's something i almost just really wanted to to show off about because this money is causing massive ne negative externalities as we look back on it and this money could be far better allocated to other things something that I want to touch upon and it links to what we said about a teacher earlier was the fact that a nurse has to work full time 40 hours a week for 20,000 years to be as rich as our current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak provided mm -hmm. he's a very 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 rich MP I think he's probably the richest Prime Minister we've ever had mm -hmm. but it's just to try and show the disparity and also just something else you touched upon was something that a lot of people are talking about in terms of a wealth tax um, a Labour MP Richard Burgeon claims that a 1.5% 1, 1. tax on all wealth exceeding 5 million, and I say 5 million because when we think about this hot 5% of earners are only in £80,000 and above, so 5 million, you're talking about elite individuals, yeah, yeah. it would raise 16 billion, a figure which can pay off for nearly the entirety of the UK student debt, so student loan, mm -hmm. that would be nearly all eroded. Um, it could also pay, interestingly, for all the striking sectors' wage loss in terms of the pension, and finally, it could save the NHS. We're talking about six to eight hours in waiting times. We're talking about a crippling system where now MPs are talking, oh, you may need to pay £20 for appointments, £60 for A&E visits, something that realistically for many, many years our taxes have been fine to provide. 
And that's something I just kind of wanted to highlight. And this links to something she said Ingrid Robbins argues. She said every billionaire is a policy failure. Mm-hmm. Would you personally agree with that? Um, well, I, in the points you just made, I think, first off, I'd like to say I think there's something important there in that it's obvious what we should do here. Mm. Of course, we should take the money from the rich yes. and solve all these societal problems. What's lacking is the political will to do it, and that's partly because billionaires and very rich people in general are in positions of power and in positions of influence so they can stop it from happening. But more generally, I don't think there's anything wrong with billionaires in themselves. Like in six to seven times as many billionaires now than there were 20 years ago. And I don't think that's a problem in itself. In fact, it's great Mm -hmm. that people's um, personal wealth grows, right? It's just that when you put it alongside the fact that in the UK, there are almost 3 million children living in persistent poverty, meaning they've been in poverty for the last five years at least, right? And if you put it alongside that figure, then of course it seems crazy. And, And then of course, It's, as you said earlier, uh, these money could just have been spent so much better Mm. in this other place, right? So it's the opportunity cost of the social opportunity costs of having this money in the hands of billionaires when it could create so much more well-being in the hands of other people or help us avoid so much uh, bad outcomes. Do you think that potentially because we're all this political influence such that you're talking talking about Rupert Murdoch, you're talking about just lobbyists, do you think that um, there should be a cap on the amount of wealth you can amass um, opposed to just instead of limitarianism where it's just you cannot earn over a certain amount? Because realistically, those with lots of money, position and power is very unrealistic to ever almost comprehend it happens in today's society. Yeah, so... There's something interesting here. I think it's like a deeper point about how you should theorize as as a social scientist. Because it might be that a wealth tax is a more realistic proposal, but it might be that the best way of getting a wealth tax to happen is to suggest an even more radical Mm. proposal because then people will say, oh, whoa, that's a yeah, bit yeah. too much, but mm. maybe we can do a wealth tax, right? Yeah. It's a bit like uh, the NHS says that pregnant women are not allowed to touch a drop of alcohol. Mm. And they actually don't mean that. Actually, the data shows you're allowed to drink one or two glasses of wine every day, and that's completely fine. But it's just because they know people are... Yeah. This will maybe yeah. stop people from getting plastered. Mm-hmm. And then... Maybe they'll only have one to two glasses of wine now that we're telling them not to do it at all. Mm. And so maybe similarly by saying we should take away all the wealth of the extremely wealthy, they'll be like, okay, okay, maybe now we can meet halfway on sort of like uh, wealth tax. If you set the bar, maybe like a 10% wealth tax, they'll then go, oh, no, 2% or not at all. Exactly. So maybe there's an idea for 
even if you don't think this is realistic, it might be the best thing to propose mm. to get uh, a m the more realistic thing to happen, to make things realistic that are currently not realistic. Good. Um, do you think, now we're going to talk about America. In your mm -hmm. study, you talk about the American dream, and the American dream is that anyone can go from nothing to something, and by something, it means millions, billions, and a limitless amount of money. Do you think potentially in America that the, in the culture that is ingrained in their society, it would it's stopping it? It would never allow it to happen, basically. Do, and so do you think Americans would just disagree outright? Yeah, so I think there's something about that this idea is very ingrained in the U.S. mentality and culture. Um, and because of that, there's a tendency to think that billionaires are the product of the American dream, that they have put in the hard work and effort, made some good choices, and therefore they are billionaires, right? Mm. And maybe this idea of the American dream um, makes people believe that more. Whereas, of course, it's just luck. Yeah. <laughs> or by far, most of it is yeah. just luck, right? Luck. Um, and I think there's something worrying about if you see... If you start seeing inequalities or massive distributive uh, differences, gaps between people, if you see them as something that's natural and unchangeable, something that's just here to stay, then they become unchangeable, right? If you change your mindset to being, we mm. could never do anything about this, then we won't, right? So again, I think... The libertarian proposal is kind of proposed as a way to make us think differently about the world, mm. right? So rather than something that you think will actually be introduced into the real world, it's more of a thought experiment kind of thing. Yeah, and it's more to make us think, hang on, maybe we could do something about this. Mm. Right? This isn't necessarily an unchangeable situation we're faced with. I think that's a very, very nice way to end off, end off with. Yeah. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your time, David. Thank you. I guys. really enjoyed what you had to say. I've been Lewis. I've been Stefan. And I've been David. <laughs>